call me sentimental, but to me, the most joyful moment in sports is the soccer goal. And when that goal happens at the World Cup, well, it's pretty good. I'm Brian Phillips. With the 2022 Men's World Cup approaching, I'm making a podcast called 22 Goals on the Ringer Podcast Network. It's about 22 of the most fire emoji goals in the history of the tournament. We're going to have so much fun. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in DC and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Friday edition, because of course we had the emergency F on Wednesday night. The boss Bill Simmons came on. I hope you guys are all doing well after Xander Bogarts is on his way to San Diego. I'm not doing well, but at least we have the Bruins and at least we have the Celtics. And by the way, we will preview the Monday night game, the Patriots and the Cardinals with Tyler Drake, who covers the Cardinals for ArizonaSports.com. So we'll do that in just a little bit. But I do want to start with this. So The way that the Bruins have started and the way that the Celtics have started kind of reminded me of like my favorite teams to watch in recent Boston history. So like I cannot go back to the 86 Celtics. I cannot go back to the Orr Bruins, but my favorite teams to watch in recent history, at least in my sports watching career, if you will, for lack of a better term, me watching sports is basically what I'm trying to say. So I narrowed it down to four teams. I had the 08 Celtics because remember they started that season if you look at the same point where this group is at, 23-3. and three, And that was when Garnett and Ray and Pierce came together. And remember, prior to that, we were all like freaking out because the Celtics fell out of the top two. And that year, it was Durant and Odin. So you felt like, okay, and we all know the Odin situation didn't work out, but you felt like, okay, the Celtics are going to get one of these guys. It's going to completely change the organization around. The previous year was a complete dumpster fire. And this was years after Antoine Walker was traded. So you felt like, okay, you're going to get a young guy to build around. And then that fell through. And then you kind of had the insider trading deal with Kevin McHale to get Garnett. And it was just like, when these guys came together, it they just fit perfectly. And it just worked right off the bat. It's very rare you see that in the NBA. But Ray kind of took that third role. Now, obviously, it didn't end well with Ray. But that team was incredible to watch. They were so good defensively. And just seeing a guy like Garnett, a former MVP, play for this team with Pierce, it was very exciting. So that was one of them for me. Another one on my list is the 18 Red Sox. So remember, they won 108 games, the most in franchise history. A plus 229 run differential. 
That was 35 runs better than anybody else in the league. That's how dominant that Red Sox team was. And remember, they ripped through the postseason. One loss to the Dodgers, one loss to the Astros, and one loss to the Yankees. They were not challenged whatsoever throughout the regular season or into the postseason. And Sale was so good before he had that injury late in the season. He did come back for the playoffs, but of course not the same guy. Had to miss a game due to the stomach issue. But nonetheless, during the regular season, had a 198 ERA. That was the best in Major League Baseball. He had a 38.4% strikeout rate. That was the best in Major League Baseball. Verlander was second that year at 35.8. So a massive difference between where Sale was at and where the second best guy was in terms of strikeouts. And remember, first two starts, he had 18 combined strikeouts. He had a 15 strikeout game against Toronto, 12 strikeout game. You also had with that team the two best hitters in the sport from a average standpoint. That year, Mookie Betts, of course, that was his MVP season. He hit 346. JD was second in Major League Baseball. He hit 330. Remember, JD was really the finishing piece on that team. He was missing the year prior. Remember, JD was playing for the Tigers, gets traded to Arizona. That was the in between year before JD and after Ortiz. You didn't have a real good DH. And then you picked up JD, completely changed the lineup. And you had moments that year, too. Remember Mookie, the 13 pitch at bat against J.A. Happ at Fenway, and then he hits the grand slam. X going nuts, time to party. Like, that was just an awesome team. That was a dominant team. You had Cora his first year as the manager here. It was just an awesome team to watch. I had so much fun watching that team. Okay, so that was my second team in terms of my favorite teams to watch in recent history with the New England area. And this is in no specific order, but these are my four favorites. Next is obviously 07 Patriots. I mean, I don't know how you can't put the 07 Patriots. And remember the Moss thing where they didn't play Moss? in terms of the preseason, and then they unleashed him for week one, and it's like, holy shit, this is going to work. And Brady sets the record, the 50 touchdowns. Randy Moss, of course, the 23 touchdown receptions, an NFL record. And then you start to think about some of the moments that season. Remember Anthony Smith, who went to my alma mater, Syracuse, and he was saying that they were going to beat the Patriots. He guaranteed a victory. Brady talked shit to him on the field. Like, he ran after him on the field. And then Bill, after the game, said, we've played against a lot better safeties than him, I'll tell you. (laughs) That's what Belichick said after the game. So it was awesome. For most of the season, they weren't challenged. At the end, they were by the Steelers, by the Ravens. And, of course, we know how that season ended. But just in the moment, that 07 team, that was magical. Brady and Moss together. And the Welker portion of this equation as well. And you had a bunch of veterans, the junior sales of the world, to go along with the Brewskis. I mean, it was just a really fun team. Nobody can deny it. Went undefeated, right? My other team in terms of my top four favorite teams to watch were the 16 Patriots because the 16 Patriots, we as a fan base, really gathered around that team because of what? Tom. Brady was suspended. That's the year he suspended for the first four games. Remember, Deflategate's all the way back in 14, but they're going through all these appeals. Brady has to sit out the first four games of the season. When Brady comes back, he goes scorched earth on the NFL. The Patriots with Brady that year were 11-1. and I still contend he should have won the MVP. 28 touchdowns, two interceptions. The only game they lost was a close Sunday night game against the Seattle Seahawks at Gillette Stadium. And of course, we all know how that season ended. The great comeback, the 28-3 comeback against the Atlanta Falcons. But I still contend, even though Brady was setting records in 07, he's had unbelievable seasons. I still believe that was his best season. So those are my four favorite teams in recent history to watch as a Boston sports fan. And I feel like both these winter teams right now are there. The Celtics are 21-5. and five, The Bruins are 21-3-1. and one. And with the Bogart stuff going on and the Patriots struggles, you have the two best teams, right, in their respective sports right now. And it's domination for both of them. The Bruins' goal differential 
is 47. No one else is over 40. The Celtics have a 9.2 net rating, which means points per 100 possession. So they're outscoring their opponents by 9.2 points per 100 possessions. The Pelicans are second in the NBA. They're under seven in that category. They're 6.9. So that's how much better the Celtics have been than anybody else. So these teams aren't just good. They're historically dominant right now, and they've both become must-see TV. You don't want to miss them, right? And this has happened in different ways. The Bs are the surprise, right? You made the coaching change, but Krejci comes out of retirement. You're like, well, you know, he's 36. Eh, nice to get the band back together, maybe for one last ride, but how good is this team really going to be? And you didn't have McAvoy to begin the season. He was coming off the surgery. Marshan's coming off surgery on both hips. And admittedly, he still isn't the same guy yet. He will get there, but he's admitted he's not the same guy yet. And you're still running laps around the league. You have outscored the defending champs, the Stanley Cup champs, 9-1 to in the past two games when you played them last Friday night and, of course, last Wednesday night. You beat the Lightning twice in the past few weeks. That's a team that has made it to three consecutive Stanley Cups. So with the Bs, it's the style, right? It's 3.96 goals per game, second in the NHL. The defenseman getting involved in the rush, Pasta having an MVP caliber season, should be up for the Hart Trophy, and now you don't want to miss anything because everything is clicking and there is still the reality in the back of your head like, hey, maybe this is it for Krejci. Maybe this is Bergeron's last great season, although I don't want to doubt him. It's kind of like a Brady situation with Bergeron. But in my lifetime, I would put this Bruins group up with these four teams that I mentioned, the 07 Pats, the 08 Cs, the 16 Pats, and the 18 Sox in terms of the interest level. And in my lifetime, this is the most exciting Bruins team. I mean, this is unbelievable what they've been able to do. They are four lines deep, and they have a Hart Trophy winner, Taylor Hall, on their third line. Taylor Hall is on the third line of the Boston Bruins. That's how good this team is right now. Okay. And also, you don't want to miss, like, the Krejci coming back. It's been awesome. But anyway... So this team is in that category right now with those other four teams. And of course, the Celtics are as well. And we knew they would be good. But the drama with Ime, the Robert Williams injury, you were a little bit concerned coming into the season. But now they're just like mean. They are punking teams. They were up against the Phoenix Suns on Wednesday night, 100 to 61, 100 to 61. There were two and a half quarters of garbage time in that game. So they are destroying teams, record-breaking offense right now, 119.9 offensive rating, and they just refuse to take a night off. And it's overwhelming in terms of the physical force they play with. Like, even when the Warriors were dominant with their run, they were great on defense, I get all that, but their game was real pretty. The Celtics just want to embarrass you, right? They want to beat you up physically. The Warriors were never built that way with the exceptional, like, Draymond Green. They go into Phoenix, they just shit all over that team, and you don't want to miss a second right now of these guys playing. So the fact that we have both this going on at the same time is pretty unbelievable to put those in the categories of like my favorite Boston teams to ever watch. And that brings me to Saturday night, right? So I can't remember being this hyped up for a regular season NBA game. Like I'm sure most of you, like I do, you watch every single Celtics game, right? Like you don't want to miss a game, you watch every single game, but... This is different, right? There's a frustration from the finals, and I just want to beat the crap out of the Warriors. Like, I feel like right now, like, I'm getting fired up to watch the Celtics and the Warriors play on primetime on Saturday night. And as we know, no Wiggins in that game. But I want the Celtics to go in there, and I want them to humiliate the Warriors and show them we're not missing what we were missing a season ago. 
I want them to just run them out of their own building. So I have a bunch of things here that I want to see in this game. And I know I'm getting real game specific for a regular season NBA game, but this is where I'm at. I'm fired up for the matchup. The first one is I want Tatum to go off. And yes, no Wiggins. I understand all that. But look, as great as Tatum has been, he's had a, he had a bad finals. He was tremendous all season long. He's been tremendous all season long. He had a bad finals. We can all agree on that. Game six, he was a no-show. 13 points, five turnovers. He was six of 18 from the field. It just didn't feel like he was in it. And we would find out he had a bunch of injuries and all that, but I'm not making excuses for him. He didn't show up for game six of the NBA Finals. In that series, he had a 12-point game as well, even though the Celtics won that game. He had a bunch of assists. But you look at the numbers, he shot 36.7% from the field in that Finals. And remember, he was god-awful from two-point territory. Twos in the Finals, he was 24 of 76, which is 31.6%. If you look at the regular season, Cole Anthony was last in the NBA last season in terms of two-point field goal percentage. He was at 43.2%. Tatum was at 31.6% in the finals. This season, Tatum is shooting a career-best 57.2% from two-point territory. He was getting to the rim. He's getting into the lane. He is finishing. No trouble whatsoever when it comes to that. Compared to the guy we saw in the finals, he's getting to the line 8.2. He's getting to the line 8.2 times per game. That's ninth in the league. That game six, where Tatum didn't show up, you know how many free throws he took in that game? Goose egg, zero. So we've seen Tatum take his anger out on the league this year. That loss is clearly feeding him. Go nuts on Saturday. That's what I want to see from Tatum. Go nuts. Take it out on the team that did it to you, right? That humiliated you in the NBA Finals. I really wish Wiggins was there so he could give it to Wiggins. But that's the first thing that I want to see in this game. Tatum, send the message to the Warriors. That shit ain't happening again. All right, number two. Get into Steph Curry. Frustrate Steph Curry in this game because he had 34, he had 43, he had another 34, he had 29. I mean, he went off. He shot 48.3% from the field, 43.7% from three-point territory. You have the reigning defensive player of the year in Marcus Smart. You have Derek White, the best screen navigator in the NBA. And don't argue with me on that. He is. The guy gets around screens better than anybody else in the league. And you now have Malcolm Brogdon, not to mention Jalen Brown is covering smaller guards at times this year because the Celtics are so big as a team. So you have a bunch of guys that can take on Steph Curry. And based on what Steph Curry did to you in the NBA Finals last year, you should take this personally. So I want them to get all over Steph Curry. I want these guys to take the challenge. And just shut it down. Shut Steph Curry down to the point where other guys are going to try to beat you in this game. And the Warriors don't have enough to beat you. If Steph Curry has an off night, the Warriors cannot win. That's been their issue all season long. They don't have enough right now around Steph Curry. So that's number two. Number three, get into it with Draymond Green. Okay, because he's the ultimate trash talker. He got in Jalen's head last year. He even talked about it on his own podcast. Remember, he said, I think after game four, we knew we had them. I'm like, all right, I'm wearing all black. It's going to be a funeral. Game five, it's time to go ahead and really kill these, like kill these boys. Game six, we put the dagger in these boys. Okay, also remember he said on his podcast that Jalen couldn't go left. He got in Jalen's head. Jalen's talking about after one of the games where Draymond ripped his shorts down. He was aggravated about that. There's no way around it. Draymond Green, he's probably, you give him the second most credit in that series last year for why the Warriors won outside of Steph Curry is because Draymond got in Jalen Brown's head. He got in Jason Tatum's head. So what I want to see in this game is I want the Celtics to blow them out, and then I want to see Jalen, and I want to see Tatum start talking to Draymond. 
Let him know that that isn't happening anymore. You cannot punk us. In fact, we're going to punk you. That's what I want to see. I want to see the Celtics up 20 late in this game and Jalen talking shit to Draymond. That's what I want to see on Saturday night. Last but not least, I want to see Jordan Poole play defense, okay? Because this guy last year was dancing around. He had a couple of big games. We know he's a defensive liability. Make him work on defense. The guy is an awful defensive player. So expose him. The Celtics have enough guys where they can mismatch hunt. Anytime this guy's on the court, just go after him. Just completely embarrass this guy. I guess I'll add one more thing to this. Make Steve Kerr red because when he gets mad, he gets really red. He gets really aggravated. I want to see Steve Kerr mad in this game. All right. One more thing I want to get to before we talk to Tyler Drake to preview the Pats Cardinals coming up on Monday night. So going back to the conversation we had with Charlie Weiss, where remember, we've been talking all season long about the issues this team has had in terms of the play calling and all that. But Charlie made a really good point on the pod earlier this week where he said, it's more about the personnel. It's about the receivers. So I was looking through this in terms of max struggles. Look at the quarterbacks in the NFL in terms of where they rank in passer rating. Two is number one. He has Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell. You would take both those guys over the Patriots' number one weapon. Who's who? Jacoby Myers. Geno Smith is number two in the NFL in passer rating. And I'm not trying to take anything away from these guys. But Geno has Medcalf and Lockett. Both those guys you take over the Patriots' number one wide receiver. Jalen Hurts. He has A.J. Brown, and he has Devontae Smith. Both those guys, you would take over the Patriots' number one receiver. Heck, you would maybe take Goddard. I know he's dealing with an injury. You would take Goddard over him. Mahomes, he's got Kelsey, who you would definitely take over anybody in the Patriots. And Juju Smith-Schuster, you could argue you'd rather have him than Jacoby Myers in terms of your number one option. I'm not saying that he'd be a great number one option, but he may be better than Jacoby Myers. Number five in passer rating is Joe Burrow. Now, Jamar Chase has been dealing with injuries, but obviously you take Chase over anybody on the Patriots. You would take T. Higgins over anybody on the Patriots. You could convince me that you would take Boyd over anybody on the Patriots. And I like Boyd. He's been on my fantasy team this year. So with the Bengals, you may take three guys. And then you look at Jimmy Garoppolo. He's sixth in pass rating. I know he's dealing with the injury now. Debo, you take over him. Kittle, you take over Myers. And I would take Ayuk over Myers. So that's the problem, right? If you look at the top six quarterbacks in rating in the NFL, I could argue all those guys have at least two weapons that are better than what Mac Jones is working with. So I get it. We get caught up with Patricia and the play calling. And this isn't me defending the play calling. I mean, I've had conversations with my buddy Kyrie Thompson, with my buddy Andrew Callahan on this show. The play calling has been atrocious. The scheme has been atrocious. Like, I'm not defending the scheme whatsoever. But we do also have to acknowledge like this narrative about the weapons sort of went away throughout the season because all we're doing is shitting on Matt Patricia and we're forgetting about what Mac isn't working with. So the fact that and I'm not saying that Patricia deserves the benefit of the doubt, but Patricia doesn't have these guys. He doesn't have these type of players to scheme up for his quarterback, which it just makes it so much more difficult for not only Mac Jones, but it makes it more difficult for Matt Patricia as well. And like I said, I don't have sympathy for Matt Patricia. But man, think about all those guys that are top six in the NFL and passer rating. Geno Smith, Tua, those guys are not incredibly talented players. Jimmy Garoppolo, not incredibly talented in terms of his actual ability on the field. You wouldn't say any of those guys are way more talented than Mac. The difference is those guys all have players to work with. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Tyler Drake, who covers the Cardinals for ArizonaSports.com. We'll get a Monday night preview with him next.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Time now to get ready for the Patriots and the Cardinals coming up on Monday Night Football. Joining us now, he covers the Cardinals for ArizonaSports.com. Also hosts the Cardinals Corner Podcast. It is Tyler Drake. Tyler, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it. No problem. Always good to chat with the, you know, the, the opponent's perspective. So, yeah, glad, for, glad to be on with you guys for sure. Well, you got all our teams there this week. You got the Celtics playing the Suns on Wednesday, which was um, very much in the Celtics' favor. You got oh, the yeah. Bruins and Coyotes coming up on Friday night and then of the Monday night games. I don't know what's going on. I've never seen this before where they're like all in the same area at the same time. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You should have, you should have came out for the, uh, for the week, man. <laughs> I know now that I think about it, like I should have, I mean, this is the perfect time for me to go out to Arizona when it's like cold here. I should have, I should have looked ahead. I mean, you're exactly right about that. Yeah. Now 100%, that I, man. Yeah. My brother's actually going out to a bachelor party. So he's going to be at the game on Friday, the Coyotes game, and then he's going to be at the game on Monday night. So I'm very jealous of him that he's going to be in Arizona. I'm going to, I'm going to be stuck in the cold. So, (laughs) Hey, we've had a lot of drama here with the play caller, Matt Patricia, and this has been a story going back to the off season, but we heard about the weird contract stuff with Kyler Murray in the off season. We saw that Thursday night game where Kyler was telling Cliff to calm down. And then we saw he said that schematically they were fucked after another game. So what's that relationship like right now between Kyler and the head coach Cliff Kingsbury? Yeah, you know, I think from just being able to be around him a lot, I think it's a relationship just built a lot on passion. I think they both really want to get things right. I think the record that they have right now and just how everything has gone this year has definitely put a, put more of a focus on it. I don't think it, anything's necessarily changed more, maybe a little bit more of a back and forth than previous uh, years, but it's something that we've seen last year too a little bit. Uh, the, the schematically effed, however you want to say it, was more <laughs> about a, a just, it was more about a single play as opposed to the whole offense for the night against the Chargers. It was about that fourth and inches play where Kyler ended up throwing that interception. Obviously, you still don't want to, you know, be saying it, saying things like that at the press conference. But for me, I think it's more just based on these guys are really passionate about what they want to do. Obviously, Cliff has talked just, you know, the Patrick Peterson comments on Kyler lately. Uh, We asked Cliff about that this week, and he said, you know, obviously you don't want to have those kind of fiery exchanges in the middle of the field, bring it to the sideline, kind of have a a closer group discussion about it or or just a back and forth that's not so over-the-top fiery. And and I think that is – I think that's where they kind of need to get the rest of these five games. I think four and eight is nowhere near where they thought they could be. I thought the offense coming into the season was, you know, maybe not a Super Bowl contender, but right there close, just given all of the weapons they had and, and just the constant, uh, you know, progression that Kyler's had over the last couple of years. But this is clearly a regression. And I think it's I don't want to say finger pointing, but you can just tell that there's a lot more. Hey, we need to get this right. Why are we not getting it right type of situation? And and. Every week, it's the same thing of like, hey, we got to execute better. Hey, we've got to do this better. Hey, we've got to. It's the same things, really. So I think it's just a, a product of where they're at offensively, given the injuries, given just the poor play, given Kyler's regression. And, and I think if they were winning, it would be a much lesser topic to cover, to be honest. 
All right. So you mentioned the Patrick Peterson comments and basically, correct me if I'm wrong, he said that Kyler cares about Kyler. So how is that? I mean, you mentioned Kingsbury responding to it, but how is that received in the locker room? Because obviously Peterson has got to be a well-respected member of that organization. He was great there for a number of years. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, I thought it was really interesting to hear from DeAndre Hopkins. I thought that that's a guy that uh, I think just the veteran status, his ability to do what he does on the field. He's a guy that a lot of us just really, you know, when he talks, a lot of people listen. And, you know, he's like, I'm not here to give a PSA about Kyler. I know he loves the game. I know he wants to be good. I know he wants to do this. I know he wants to help the team. So I've seen a lot of defense. You know, we've, I had a Lasita Smith on uh, one of the rookie linemen a couple of days ago on Cardinals corner. And, and he spoke really highly about Kyler. I mean, we really didn't get in, give him the, we didn't really lob him up the question. I just asked him, Hey, what's your impression of Kyler? And he goes, you know, for as much criticism as the guy gets, he loves to ball. And I think people mistake his passion for just wanting to get things right. And a lot of people go off those little clips, those national clips of, I mean, we saw the Thursday night game, like you said, like even him and Hopkins getting into it. And if you ask Hopkins, he loves it because he knows his quarterbacks really, really just dedicated to trying to get things right. But then at the same time, there's also that, that part where do you really want your franchise quarterback to really rip on everybody whenever you see him doing something wrong? So there's definitely, I think there's a balance you kind of have to find, but I don't think I mean, from everybody we talked to, and, and obviously, you know, you've got to take into account where Hollywood Brown's Kyler Murray's best friend. DeAndre Hopkins is on his team. Lasita Smith is, is a rookie trying to come up. Kelvin Beecham is a veteran who's on the team, too. So they're not really going to come out there and bash the guy, but I thought how they said things. Kelvin said it great. He's taking steps. He's, uh, you know, he's doing things outside of the building more than he has, which he's really happy about. So I definitely think you can see the, the growth of Kyler. And I think his response to Patrick was great too, in itself of just, Hey, you were supposed to be this mentor. You're supposed to be this big, big bro to me. And instead you go try to grow your podcast and <laughs> criticize me, which I thought was funny because I mean, when they were together, it, there was never that I, I didn't, at least for me, I didn't think that there was any kind of disconnect. Patrick always seemed to have his back. Same thing with Kyler. So uh, doesn't sound like they'll talk anytime soon, though. <laughs> yeah. And hey, you mentioned that four and eight record. So what's sort of the temperature there with the head coach, Cliff Kingsbury, and maybe even the front office? I know Steve Kime's been there forever, but does it feel like if they don't turn this around quickly that maybe both or at least one of those guys will be gone after the season? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I think these five games are really going to show you like, hey, this is what we have going into next season. So for me, if they can't really right the ship, get get a couple wins there. There ha- I think there has to be changes. I think what I said earlier, you know, the offense was stacked. Obviously, Hopkins getting suspended hurts. They had enough time to try to remedy that without him. Hollywood Brown obviously goes down too, but there's enough weapons to get things done. Zach Ertz going down doesn't hurt either. Uh, so I would just say, I think if they can't get it done, especially the offensive side, if the offensive side can't get it done, I you have to look at it. You have to look at that. And I think you have to look at the GM too with Steve Kime. Just the fact of, if you look at the recent additions through free agency, the Cody Fords, the Robbie Andersons, uh, the the trade for Trayvon Mullen. I mean, all of these guys really haven't panned out the way that they were kind of showed to the the to everyone out here, at least. Like Trayvon Mullen was supposed to come in and basically take over starter reps for Antonio Hamilton when he had that freak accident, the cooking accident. Uh, Cody Ford was supposed to come in and help alleviate the injuries along the line, but instead. Both of those guys were dealing with their own injuries, really, when they came over. And then you have Robbie Anderson, who still has not even, I mean, I think he has one, one catch for positive yards now. He's, he's <laughs> negative for three yards, and now he's finally got that, got that 14 or 13 yards on his uh, Cardinals resume. And then, you, I mean, it, look, but then 
you have that and you look over at San Francisco with Christian McCaffrey and it's like, how, do, how are they getting this guy in here and basically scoring land, sea and air that one game. And we can get Robbie Anderson involved more as a deep threat that we needed. So that's kind of the, I, I think it's, it's, if they're going to make a change, I think you've got to make a full change. I think it's, it's head coach and GM at the end of the day. Yeah. And if you look at Kyler so far this season, I mean, across the board, his numbers are down, whatever you look at, completion percentage, QBR, passer rating, et cetera. So I know DeAndre Hopkins, of course, missed the chunk of time at the beginning of the season with the suspension. And now Zach Ertz lost for the season. So how much of it is Kyler regressing or is it more so that they just haven't had any stability from an offensive standpoint with the weapons? Yeah, I think it's more of the instability or yeah, this definitely the instability and and especially with Kyler even missing some time himself with the hamstring. I think that also kind of hurt his stock as well. But I think it goes back to just there could have been a better game plan in place where it's, hey, let's not play hero ball of Hopkins. We don't have him for seven games, so we have to figure out another way to get things done. And I think Hollywood Brown played really well. I thought Greg Dortch stepped up really big. But it's just, I mean, you're missing Rondell Moore, you're missing Zach Ertz, you're missing DeAndre Hopkins at some point or another this season. And I just think not having those key pieces, those key contributors is really impacting his play. And I think he's also taken I think he's just taken a step back, too. I think he's had a little bit of that regression of especially with the accuracy. I think that's the biggest thing for me, because I think he was like 66, 67, 69 over the last couple of years. And now he's just he's dropped way below that now. So that's kind of the big thing that I've been watching this this season is just the accuracy side of it. He's just really not clicking with those guys. And I think that has a lot to do with just not being able to have a lot of time on task consistently over the season. All right, Tyler. And if you look at it, you mentioned DeAndre Hopkins. Bill Belichick earlier this week compared him to Chris Carter, obviously has a ton of respect for DeAndre Hopkins. You mentioned Hollywood Brown, obviously Robbie Anderson not being much of a contributor. Zach Ertz is out of this game. So who is the guy like? Is there somebody outside of DeAndre Hopkins that this Patriots defense has to worry about? Is it Hollywood Brown? Yeah, I mean, definitely Hollywood Brown. I think his connection with Kyler alone, they still they still have a couple things they can improve on, but I think they have that kind of, I know where he's going to be down the field. I know what he's going to do. I'm just going to throw it there. And uh, another guy, I think, like I said earlier, Greg Dortch, man, if, when he gets a chance, this guy can really do things and he'll definitely get some work in the slot. I really don't think Rondell Moore plays this week, to be honest. Uh, he, you know, he's missing practices this week already. So uh, if it was me, I would say Greg Dortch is definitely somebody to watch in for the Cardinals offense to really work, they've got to find somebody in the middle. And if they can figure out Trey McBride getting in there at some point and actually, you know, playing like that, do it all Colorado uh, state tight end, who was, I think the Mackey award winner this last, uh, that last year in college, then get his hands going. I mean, that would be huge too, but that's, I think the biggest thing they're missing is that tight end play. But outside of that, I think Greg Dortch, definitely the slot guy to, to keep eyes on. He's just, the dude does not get enough credit in my opinion. All right. And this Patriots defense has really struggled against running quarterbacks over the past couple of years. Even this year, Lamar ran all over them. We saw Justin Fields do the same thing. So when you look at Kyler, his yards per rush, it's right under seven. It's like 6.8. I know as a team, they haven't run the ball well. But do you think in this game on Monday night, knowing that about the Patriots defense, that they'll dig into the design runs more for Kyler? You know, I would want I I would hope the answer would be yes. But just the, the the Kyler Murray running conundrum is just one of those things that we us here in Arizona, we're always talking about because <laughs> as good as he is when he runs, it just seems like he does not want to do it. It's just that mm. he doesn't want that to be part of his game. But that's what makes him so dynamic is when he can really turn on the afterburners with his feet. So 
I would expect more design runs with him, but at the end of the day, I also wouldn't doubt that he's going to try to sit back there and try to make things happen with his arm before he does anything with his feet, because especially this year, that's just has been what it seemed outside of that Raiders game, really. Yeah, Tyler, I was looking to just at his numbers in terms of the Patriots. They're really good at getting after the quarterback, their second in pressure rate. And Kyler, by the numbers, hasn't faced a ton of pressure, just 27% of his dropbacks, which is the sixth lowest rate, but five picks when he's pressured, the third most, 40.5 completion percentage. Only Mack and Zach Wilson are worse. The rating's at 33.6%. So is it, does he just get a little bit panicky when he sees pressure? Is it, he tries to create too much? He doesn't get rid of the ball? What's sort of been his issue when he is pressured? Yeah, I feel like for me, it's, 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 he's not getting rid of the ball. And, and then when he is getting rid of the ball, he's trying to make up for that lost time of trying to scramble, trying to get out of the pocket, trying to get out of that pressure. And, and I think another part is just that offensive line has been a difference. It's been a different configuration almost every week, it feels like now. And that has not helped. So as soon as they, as soon as that added pressure gets on him, I think he kind of that that pocket just collapses on him. And then, yeah, I mean, you have to take into his account his height. I mean, it's hard when you've got all these giant mm. guys bearing down on you, and you've got to kind of throw back off your foot to even get it above them. So there's a lot of things that I think are going into it. But yeah, I would say the offensive line, just him trying to make things happen, like you said, and yeah, just not getting the ball out. I think that's that's been a thing the last couple of years where it's like, hey, he could have just thrown that away and avoided this. Instead, he takes a 10-yard sack and they're out of field goal. And we got an interesting matchup on the other side of the field. We basically have a horrible offense against a really bad defense. And I was looking at it like J.J. Watt is now 33. He leads the team with six and a half sacks. Is he still somebody that attracts double teams like at this point based on the rest of the guys around him? I mean, him and Zach Allen, I think Zach Allen doesn't get enough credit either. Like Greg Dortz, like I was talking about earlier, this guy is definitely going to get paid this offseason, if not before that, because he has really stepped up his game. And a lot of that is from Ert, or from Ertz, from J.J. Watt. And yeah, I think they both are, are requiring double teams right now. I mean, Vance Joseph told us like a month and a half ago that Zach Allen was going to start getting double teams here soon enough. And I mean, he deserves them. They're both rolling and and. If that and that's been their pass rush at, at the end of the day, I mean, the, the outside linebackers have been OK. I mean, my Jay Sanders, the rookie and Cam Thomas have a couple sacks, but Marcus Golden, who was supposed to be that, you know, sack getter this year, has not stepped up. Uh, that could be part of the Chandler Jones departure, too, and just get, not getting pressure on the opposite side of him. But really, if you look at it, the pass rush starts with J.J. Watt and Zach Allen. So, yeah, if the Patriots want to have any kind of success. It's going to start with those two guys. Yeah, and they blitz a ton, too. Like, their blitz numbers are through the roof. Third highest rate in the NFL, but yeah. <laughs> they're not getting a lot of sacks out of it. No. But if you look at this Patriots offense, they have not done a good job protecting Mac Jones. And I know the Cardinals all season long, they've been ripped apart in the passing game. But does this feel like a better matchup for them, considering this Patriots offense? Really, I mean, you look through the past two months, they've had one good game against Minnesota. Does this feel like a game where they could kind of get right? Yeah, yes and no. I, the one thing that's worrying me is a little bit is the Byron Murphy situation. I mean, he he's still got back issues. He missed practice today after he was out there yesterday. So there's a couple things to watch on that side. And then also, I mean, Stevenson's a problem. Like he he is a problem for sure. I can't believe just from the outside, him and Damian Harris, I thought it was Damian Harris's job. And then he just has taken over and ran with it literally. Like he is a problem. So, I mean, that's, I think, the main part of the Cardinals game plan is stopping that guy right there and making Mac commit mistakes. But if they don't have the proper corners out there, they might open up some windows for Mac to Mac to show off a little bit. 
We'd love to see that because we haven't <laughs> seen a lot of that this season. But you were mentioning just Ramondre Stevenson, and he has been a beast for this team. He's been absolutely tremendous. But all week, Bill was talking about DeAndre Hopkins. The guys are talking about trying to contain Kyler Murray. So outside of Ramondre Stevenson, are the Cardinals talking about anybody on this Patriots teams in terms of the weapons? Like, are they worried about any of these receivers or the tight ends? Because they really haven't had consistency there outside of like Jacoby Myers. Yeah, I mean, and that would be a guy that uh, Vance mentioned him. And I believe uh, Parker. Uh, yeah, I'd say Parker, too, as well. Like not not a ton. It seems like all of that, you know, all of the focus was on stopping Patriots run game and stopping Stevenson. I mean, Stevenson can do it in the passing game, too. So uh, that that guy is just I, I think that's been the thing this year. I mean, with Christian McCaffrey, when he was on Carolina, they stopped the run game with him, but they gave up, I think, 90 yards or 80 something yards and nine catches to him. So they're they can they might be able to stop the run, but they might not still stop the running back because he still could do things in the passing game. So I think he's going to be public enemy number one. And then from there, I think Jacoby Myers gets involved. And then at the end of the day, it's just getting Mac Jones on the ground. All right, Tyler, before we let you go, so FanDuel has this at one and a half. The Patriots are favored on the road, which that line kind of stunk to us looking at it. Now, I kind of feel like the Patriots, I'm going to pick the Patriots to win this game in a second here, and I'll give my reasons. But where are you on this one? Do you think that the Cardinals get right in this game, or do you think that this is the Patriots coming into Arizona and picking up a win? Oh, yeah. This So I think I've got to give the credit. The credit, I mean, obviously the players win the game, but I think it's really going to come down to Bill versus Cliff. I think that's going to be the the name of the game. Cliff is, I mean, that's his mentor. That's his guy. He's, you know, we was we were talking uh, a couple of days ago with him and about just how, you know, how much does this mean more than the other ones? He's like, well, and you could kind of tell he's like, well, at this point in the season, every win means something. But yeah, of course, this one means a little bit more, but I'm not going to say it like that. So I think it's really going to come down to coaching. And I mean, at this point in the season, you've got to give it to Bill. I just the the inconsistencies on Arizona's side is offensively is too great and the defense can play lights out but if it's on the field constantly bill belichick is going to be able to exploit that and just i that's that's where i think the the issues are going to be is kingsbury's offense not staying on the field long enough to give the defense enough you know time Mm. to rejuvenate and get out there and actually make plays instead of just being the bend don't break time type of mentality yeah, it makes sense, Tyler. This is the one thing I will tell you, though. This is the good news for Cardinals fans is so Bill owns his old assistants, but not his old players. Vrabel constantly beats him and Kevin O'Connell just beat him a couple of weeks ago. So if you're looking for some positivity from a Cardinals perspective, Bill's former players beat him. We'll see if Kingsbury can do it on Monday night. All right. That is Tyler Drake covers the Cardinals for ArizonaSports.com. Also hosts the Cardinals Corner Podcast. Tyler, great stuff, man. Really appreciate the time and enjoy the game Monday night. Hopefully at least it's a good one. Yeah, yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, anytime you want me back, just uh, give me a ring. All right. Appreciate it, Tyler. Welcome back into Off the Pike. It's time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. And yes, I am going to Monday Night Football. The Patriots and the Cardinals. We were just talking about it. The Patriots, one and a half point favorites on the road. And you would think, Brian, you learned, right? Fields ripped up the Patriots running the football. Lamar ripped up the Patriots running the football. Josh Allen would have if they actually needed him to run, but they were in control of that game. They didn't need Josh Allen to run. The Patriots have really struggled with running quarterbacks, but I'm looking on the other side of things. The Pats offense, we've been complaining about it all year, but on Monday night, if it's not going to happen then, when is it going to happen? You look at the defense for the Cardinals. They're 25th in pass DVOA. 
Football Outsiders metric. They are 24th in passing yards per game, 30th in passer rating against 101. Horrible. Completion percentage against 31st, 69.2%. They don't get to the quarterback, just 1.9 sacks per game, 23rd in the NFL. They are 32nd, dead last in success rate against the pass. So this is the week where Mac Jones and this offense, and remember, Minnesota did not have a great defense and the Patriots did move the ball. The other big thing in this game, if you look at the red zone, the Patriots are the worst red zone offense in the entire NFL. They're tied with Denver, I should say, for the worst. 37.5%, they're scoring touchdowns in the red zone. Well, guess what? The Cardinals are the worst red zone defense in the NFL. 68.9% in terms of their touchdown percentage against in the red zone. Dead last in the NFL. So it's the worst against the worst. Mac is going to have a good game on Monday night. The team is rallying around him. Heck, guys are speaking publicly about how bad the scheme is. They feel bad for Mac in the situation. Guys are defending Mac publicly. The Pats win this thing. They get to seven and six. They get back in the race. Now, I'm not saying that means they're any sort of contender or anything along those lines, but I do believe the Patriots cover that one and a half points on Monday night and they win this game, and they're at least relevant for yet another week of the NFL season. That's my prediction. That's my greatest Boston bet of the week, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. All right, so we have time for a call. Let's get to that. The number is 617-396-7172. 617-396-7172. Hi, Jason and Beverly Matts again. It is 1242. Just saw the news that Xander Bogart signed that 11-year, $280 million contract with Padres. So much for getting any uh, sleep tonight. So this is what's going to happen. The Red Sox defenders, the Ibluminati holdouts, the worst humans on Twitter, they're going to defend this by saying, oh, what do, you, what do you want the Red Sox to do? He's 30 years old. You can't give him an 11-year deal. That misses the point. It never should have come to this. They could have gotten a five, six-year deal done in April for a lot less money. The real winner this offseason, yes, Xander, but Scott Boris. You know Scott Boris hated, absolutely hated that Xander took that team-friendly deal in 2019. So this time around, he made the Red Sox his bitch. All the chatter today about the hot and heavy negotiations with the Red Sox and all these leaks, the Red Sox are being aggressive. You know, Pete Abe, I think, had a tweet that, you know, John Henry called Sox management. Maybe he's going to come down and, and, and have them act like a serious big market organization. Nope. All Boris smokescreen. He milks the Padres for every last dollar. This is, this is his masterpiece. It really is. Got to give him credit. So in the end, Scott Boris got Xander Bogart more than three times. Think about that. More than three times what the Red Sox offered in April. Does anybody on Jersey Street have any connection with reality anymore? I don't think they do. Okay, yeah, we got this outfielder from Japan who may or may not have enough power in the major leagues, but he'll walk a lot. Yay. We finally got a closer. That only took five years. Yay. I'm done with this team. I think a lot of other people are done with this team. Oh, and by the way, how much more money is it going to cost to sign Devers now? You think they're going to shell out? No chance. Kiss him goodbye. Might as well make the Mookie trade 2.0 at this point. All right, Jason. Great stuff as always, man. (laughs) That was very passionate. And the Devers situation is very scary. I'm with you on Scott Boris. I mean, Scott Boris now, he must feel like, 
really happy that the Red Sox lowballed Xander Bogarts because he got him 200 and $80 million. Unbelievable for Boris. But I think Jason speaks for a lot of Red Sox fans in terms of the frustration. Speaking of that Bogarts hangover. So we recorded, of course, late, right after that deal went down. So Julian McWilliams put out an article in The Globe on Thursday. Great article, by the way, if you haven't read it. And he described Heim Bloom as stunned and shell-shocked after it went down, where he was getting ready to get on the plane. From McWilliams's article, give me a minute. He was, quote, staring into space in isolation, according to Julian McWilliams. And the whole idea of he was stunned and shell-shocked, this is incredible to me. How was he stunned and shell-shocked? Did they think that Scott Boris was bluffing, that all these teams weren't willing to fork over big-time money over $300 million to Xander Bogarts, or close to $300 million, $280 million, or at least over $200 million? The Red Sox weren't even willing to go there. How could they be stunned? Did the Red Sox really think? that $160 million was going to get it done for one of the top five free agents from a positional standpoint on the market. How could they possibly think that was going to get it done, especially considering two days earlier, you saw Trey Turner signed for $300 million. Did they just take think Xander was going to take more time to make his decision? Well, I don't understand this. You kept lowballing the guy. Eventually, he's going to leave. They probably gave you an opportunity to speak with him again on Thursday or on Wednesday, rather, and you guys lowballed him again. After all this went down, you lowballed him again with your $160 million offer. Unbelievable to me. I don't know how this guy is stunned and shocked. And that scares me. Like, we know he's a smart guy, Ivy grad and all that. But how did you think that deal was going to get it done? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. How could he be shocked? How could he be stunned? And the other note from the Bogart situation is Pete Abraham and Alex Spear had an article in terms of how this all happened. How do we get to this point? And they described what happened prior to the 2022 season. This is from the article. Bogarts, a source suggested, would have been open to a new deal that was in the range of what Story received. The five-year, $151 million deal that Astros star Jose Altuve landed in his extension several years earlier, likewise represented a framework that Bogarts would have welcomed. This is it right here. This is the story. And we told you this the other night. This is what happened. Why did they think that Bogarts would sign for four years and $90 million? And why did they think that Story was worth six years and $140 million and Bogarts was only worth four years and $90 million? This, from my perspective, is a fireable offense. How can ownership trust a guy that fucked this up that bad? where you could have signed him through, what, his 35, 36-year-old season at a very reasonable number, what Story's making, what Altuve's making. So a very reasonable contract, and Story is signed through his 35, but you wouldn't sign Xander through 35, 36 when Xander was the superior player, and Xander's not the guy with the injury history, Story is. So this, to me, is where it was lost. Like, you can defend it, not signing the guy to $280 million for 11 years. You can defend that, but you can't defend the initial action or inaction of not signing him last offseason. He would have signed the deal. He's telling you that he would have signed, or the sources are saying he would have signed for $151 million. Just give him something similar to the story. He would have signed it, and we don't have these conversations anymore. And you don't have to worry about Bogarts this offseason, which has become, which was the biggest story until yesterday when it's now over, or I should say on Wednesday, late Wednesday into Thursday when it's all over. You could have had this done. I mean, it's really, you can't defend it if you're high in bloom. And I don't know how ownership 
can trust the guy. Maybe they're just completely asleep at the wheel, which, I mean, you can't argue to that point. Maybe they are asleep at the wheel. But the point being is you could have got it done. You didn't. How is this guy still running this organization? I mean, it's a very scary thought going forward. All right, I did want to get to a metric man breakdown of what the Sox have done so far. I mean, the Bogarts thing, that's the biggest story. We're all pissed about that, but let's get to a couple of other things. So the Sox bullpen major issue last year, 459 ERA, 26 in baseball, 9.9% walk rate, 25th in baseball, 101 meltdowns, tied for the third most in baseball. So all those numbers bad. So I give them credit. They go out there, they get Canley Jansen. I've been saying for a couple of years, you need a closer. They have one. Two years, $32 million. Great. Strikeout rate is really good. 32.7%. 20th of 152 relievers. Opponent's batting average was 20th at 191. 105 whip, which is really good. 41 save, second most in baseball, which that's the big one to me because you actually have a closer. And we all know he has his famous cutter, which is nasty. Opponents were just 24 of 141 against that pitch last year. That's 171. And just to get real nerdy on this, 8.4 inches of horizontal break. That's third in all of Major League Baseball. I mean, that thing is nastiness. It moves like crazy. And the only concern with him is really the walks, right? Because if you look at it last year, 8.5% walk rate, which was 85th of 152 relievers. So he will get wild at times. You go back to 2021, that number is at 12.9%, 124th out of 144. So that is a little bit of a concern. But what's not a concern is this is a proven reliever. We've been asking for one. You got a legitimate closer. I give Bloom credit for that. I give no credit whatsoever for Bogarts. I give him a ton of credit for this. 65 and a third postseason innings in his career, 12.9 strikeouts per nine, which is great in the postseason, and his whip is at 0.80, and splits good too. 160 opponents batting average against righties, 200 against lefties, so you got yourself a closer. It's great. I mean, it's just, it's all ruined by the Bogart situation. All right, the second guy is Chris Martin, who they signed. They got huge relievers, by the way. Martin's 6'8", 225. The thing I love about Martin is, remember, Cora said we need strike throws out of the bullpen. Chris Martin last year, a 2.2% walk rate. That was first in Major League Baseball. Think about this. He walked five guys. He faced 225 hitters. Jake Walkman, Jake Diekman, his real name, but I call him Walkman. He was second to last in Major League Baseball in walk rate. He faced 269 batters. He walked 42. This guy walked five guys the entire season. Good strikeout numbers too. 32.9%, which was 18th out of 152 relievers. Actually better than Jansen. He will give up some loud contact, but... That's really the only negative thing you can find about him. The splits are good. 232 against lefties, 229 against righties. And you know what makes up for the loud contact is he's constantly peppering the strike zone. So he's not going to put extra guys on base. And rare for a reliever, the guy throws six pitches. Now, he doesn't throw a slider or his curveball up, but he's got a lot of pitches. Good four-seamer. If you look at it, 42.5% of the time he throws it right. He's hit just 109 in total, 146. The cutter is good as well. He's got a splitter. So he's got a lot of different pitches that he'll throw out there. And the biggest thing to me is, as I said, this is a reliable guy where you know he can throw strikes. And now you have two reliable guys out of the bullpen to go with the group that you already have with Hauk and Schreiber. And Rodriguez, I told you, I like that as a flyer. And remember, Schreiber was worn down last year. If you look at July 14th through the end of the season, 25% strikeout rate, 99th out of 185. Beginning of the season till July 13th, he was at 33.9%, 13th of 172. His whip from July 14th through the end of the season, 131, that was 120th out of 185 relievers. Beginning of the season through July 13th, he was at 0.60 in terms of his whip. That was first in Major League Baseball. His opponent's batting average from July 14th through the end of the season, 248, that was 133rd. If you look at that number from the beginning of the season till July 13th, 119 opponents batting average, which was second. 
The reason I point that out is they overused Schreiber because he was worn down. That shouldn't be an issue for the Red Sox this season. All right, the last one is Masataka Yoshida, the guy they signed from Japan. Five years, 90. Now, the posting fee brings that up to $105.4 million. I hate to do this, but you got to bring Bogarts back into this. They only offered Bogarts $90 million prior to last season. And I go, I know some of this is the posting fee, but you're offering a guy that's never played in the major leagues, 105.4, you signed him to that. You wouldn't even give Bogarts more than $90 million prior to last year. I mean, that's just an irritating thing. Now, I do like the signing, although it's way too pricey. They paid too much for this guy. They wouldn't give Bogarts money. It makes no sense to me. But nonetheless, you look at his numbers last year, 508 plate appearances over in Japan, 336, 447, 561 slug, OPS is over 1,000, 21 bombs. Two big things. He doesn't strike out. Now, we'll see if that carries over. I'm sure he's not going to strike out a ton, but those numbers will go up a little bit in the major leagues. But 41 strikeouts, that's 8.1%. The leader this past season in Major League Baseball was Luis Arise at 7.1%. Jeff Passan pointed that out. So, Really, that's the only guy that would have been better than him in the major leagues. Obviously different. Verdugo was first on the Red Sox, by the way, at 13.4%. The big one to me, though, is the walks. He walked 80 times in 508 plate appearances last year. That's 15.7%. Now, the only guys that had higher walk rates in the major leagues than that, Soto, Judge, and Muncy. That should carry over. Bogarts, by the way, was at 9.059th. That was the best on the Red Sox in terms of their qualified hitters. So Cassis, by the way, he would walk a lot, but he wasn't a qualified hitter. I mean, he had 95 plate appearances. He did walk 19 times, 20%. That is absolutely outstanding. But that control of the strike zone should carry over. And that's something the Red Sox need, where you look at it last year, 18th and walk rate at 7.8%, which is obviously not good whatsoever. And the big thing that I look at is Cassis, who is a very picky hitter, very selective hitter. And now when you look at it too, when you bring over Yoshida, that's two guys that will actually take ball four. It's something the Red Sox have not had over the past couple of years. They had it with Schwarber, and it was really good when Schwarber was here. Remember, the Red Sox lineup completely changed because Schwarber would spit on everything in front of Rafi and JD and Bogarts, the big bat. So I do like the fact that they did get a guy that will walk a lot, even though they completely overpaid him, and even though they completely fucked up the Xander Bogarts situation. I do like those three signings. I like Jansen and Martin more because the contracts are reasonable. I don't like the contract that they gave to Yoshida, but I do like the idea of the player that you brought in. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in at 617-396-7172. Again, that's 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. 